Hello and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. This is That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. This week's episode, we have Erden Falkold-Strand, who is a principal engineer at NAV, the Norwegian Labour and Welfare Administration, which handles a third of the state budget of Norway. That is huge. Erden was introduced to us by Fred George, the grandfather of microservices. If you haven't checked that episode out, then please do so. It's an awesome episode. The two met a few years back after one of Fred's talks and then worked alongside one another whilst delivering the most extreme of digital transformation at NAV. Under Erden's leadership, NAV have moved the mainframes and an entirely external staff to a microservices architecture and a team of a few hundred that roll out releases a ridiculous number of times per day. This is probably the most inspirational transformations we've ever heard of. And it's in the public sector. How cool is that? Before all that, just a few housekeeping things. If you could please leave us a review on either Podchaser or Apple, that would be fantastic. It really helps spread the word of the channel. And if you want to support the channel even further, then please head on over to patreon.com slash that tech show where you can support the channel for a little five pounds a month. So without further ado, here is Odin Falkland Strand. My name is Odin Falkland I'm Norwegian, of course. I think I've worked in software for like 20 years now. Uh, I used to be a consultant uh, multiple places. Uh, my standard joke is uh, twice a consultancy company has sent me to the company I worked for now, but it was so bad that I uh, quit the consultancy company both times. Uh, <laughs> and then I, I started working for Finn, which is the biggest website in Norway. And they had like proper agile, proper development culture and everything. And that's where I kind of, I learned a lot of what I, what I think is smart now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I, I worked there for four years and then I started working for NAV, which is the biggest government agency in Norway. and kind of been a part of a big transformation there for the last four years. So let's just talk about the scale as well, because obviously we had mm-hmm. a little catch up before the call. Um, so you know, give me give me a little bit of an interpretation, or give the listeners an interpretation of how big we're talking in terms of in terms of where you are now. Basically, it is one politician in two thousand and six or something said we need to uh, merge a few different agencies in Norway. So we basically merge everything to do with health and everything to do with work into one big agency. And I, I haven't studied this in detail, but. Apparently, we do the same as like 20, 30 different agencies in the US. So we basically handle everything for the welfare state and pensions. Mm. So we pay out about a third of the national budget in Norway is paid out to us. And we handle everything from parental benefits to sickness benefits to pensions to uh, getting people jobs and everything. So it's basically a one-stop shop for most of the stuff except for the tax part. The tax part is a separate thing, so we don't take mm-hmm. money, we just pay out money and help people. Which is nice. It's sort of like the Robin Hood side yeah. of things. You're just giving all the money away. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so in terms of the, the total amount then, it's a third of the budget. What, what, um, what sort of figure is that? Uh, I think it's about, uh, and I'm struggling a bit with the English-American thing, 400 billion Norwegian kroner, about 40 billion pounds then probably. Wow, wow. So 40 billion pounds. I don't know how much that is in dollars. <laughs> American listeners can do the uh, can do the conversion. Uh, it's a bit of uh, it's an activity podcast for you. You can go and look that up. For- <laughs> um, 
which is quite an incredible amount, isn't it? Really, mm. it's a huge amount. And um, and also when we were talking, we were talking about the the uh, the total number of users you have, which is mm. the entirety of Norway. <laughs> yeah, well, at, at least in theory, I think all Norwegians go to get some money from now because you get or your parents at least get when you're a child, and then you have when you get a kid or when you get sick or when you lose a job or the last thing you can if you if you don't have the money, we can pay for your funeral. So there's this there's this uh, saying we support you from uh, uh, all the way from you're born till you die basically, and then of course the, the the pension part is for everybody gets a pension. So we have a relationship with every Norwegian basically, and uh, we also say we have we, we we it's not important for us to get more customers because we can we we have we have the Norway's population and we have a, a captive audience. <laughs> yeah, we only have orga- organic growth in our user base with kind of a nine-month uh, warning when you get new users. <laughs> yeah, your organic growth is literally organic growth, isn't it, yeah. really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually growing new humans. Yeah. Um, so that's, that, I mean, it's, pre- it's pretty incredible, really, that you are serving the entirety of the, uh, the, entirety mm. of the country and the amount, of, um, the amount that you're dealing with in terms mm. of how much you've got to pay out. So obviously, uh, we, you know, we've, we've talked about this very briefly, that our um, introduction came via Fred George, who is a, mm. who was a guest on the on the show uh, yeah. recently, and as you mentioned just before, a big name in tech. And um, so, you've gone through a massive transformation in recent years. So, talk us through where where that started and uh, and where you've got to now. Yeah. Well, first of all, we can say that novice. Even though we were kind of emerged in 2006, the things that were merged on that shoulder. So our older system is like, it's about exactly my age. It's 42 years old. It's a big mainframe handling all the mm. sick, sickness benefits. But And then uh, after 2006, we had this strategic decision of not having any developers. We only had like architects and project managers and testers and everything, but no developers. That was done by consultancies. But we got a new CIO in 2016, I think. And he said, well, we need to have, we need to own our technical future, basically. So we, and he always said, you need to be smart to buy smart. So he basically said, we need to, we need to hire developers. So we started that in 2016. Uh, I was number eight or something. Uh, mm. Well, this sounds like a startup, but this is in the middle of a 20,000 people, big organization. And then, IT department of several hundreds, even though they didn't have developers. Uh, well, it's quite incredible as well to think about the fact that this is happening, this this scale up from zero developers mm. or zero permanent developers at mm. the very least. Yeah. This is happening in the midst of the, um, the, the captive audience that we've previously spoken about mm. and the amount of money that's getting paid out. Like the, the, this transformation whilst maintaining um, that stability is incredible. It's a big challenge, and there really isn't an option to mm. not work. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, if if your system starts to fail, then uh, mm. you know the whole country has problems. <laughs> mm. uh, yeah. So now we're about two hundred developers, three hundred, I think, if you count data engineers as developers, and sometimes we do. <laughs> 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 uh, so, and we are still trying to grow further because even though we have this many internal developers, we still have a few hundred consultants as well and we want to we don't want to get rid of all consultants but there's still room for more developers but it's mm. 
hiring people isn't necessarily the easiest thing in the world because we also want to keep kind of the quality of who we hire. Absolutely. So, I mean, how do you how do you get through that process then? So, I mean, you you talked about um, you know you 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 met Fred in 2015. Mm. Uh, um, we talked about this just as we were setting up the podcast, but talk to us about how that how that came about. Oh yeah, uh, well, uh, I met uh, Fred in uh, uh, 2015, I think, because I wanted to go to, uh, well, me and a few friends, we wanted to go to a great restaurant and we found Noma in Copenhagen. So we needed to find a, we needed to find a software conference that made us made it possible for us to also eat at Noma. <laughs> uh, so we went to go to Copenhagen, and we had the, uh, we had the Fred George's incredible microservice workshop. Uh, another funny detail is we actually had Eric Evans, the author of the Domain Driven Design book. He was he was one of the participants in the workshop. Uh, so it was kind of it was really cool. And after that, we got. Um, I had Fred to do that workshop for Finn, the other comp- the company I worked for at the time. And mm-hmm. then later we had him at NAV as well because the workshop is really great at teaching asynchronous programming, basically, and microservices. Mm. And then we had that a few times. And then Fred all of a sudden sent an email saying, can I come and work for you? So we said, yes, of course. And he moved from Las Vegas to Oslo. Uh, and uh, he went straight into the, the biggest... Uh, product we have had or we were developing at the time the one for uh, replacing the sickness benefit the big mainframe mm-hmm. uh, so basically we started doing that and we after a while the team went all in on kind of their rapids and rivers uh, thing that fred has developed i think with basically having it's when you first hear about that kind of architecture it's quite strange or it sounds strange because you have basically have this big Kafka or other message queue in the middle. And every all of the microservices send everything as a message on Kafka. And then you then you kind of have the other microservices uh, listening to the rapid and filtering out and only caring about a few of the messages. And that mm. filter is kind of the rivers. And then you when they do something, they send, send it back to the rapid. So we basically have this... In, loop of messages just going through and through and you just add new microservices on and you can just uh, you read new messages so kind of a big view of that we have the applications coming into the rapid and we do a lot of processing and then we have the decisions the Mm. if people get money or how much money and stuff coming out and then uh, i think that kafka topic is like multiple terabytes because there's so much data coming Mm. in and Every every little step adds a new message to the rapid uh, topic. So, was the plan with this replacement of um, uh, of that mainframe that is the same age as you? <laughs> was the plan always to go with microservices? Following on from meeting with Fred, or was it really Fred's um, joining you at the company that that spurred you to go in that direction? Well, I, I would say. The microservice part was quite uh, given. I think we, mm. we we worked for like half a year before he came in as well, and doing a big monolith wasn't really on the card at any time. But mm. uh, yeah, because I think when we when we talked to Fred, we did talk about the when to not use microservices. Because I know some of his more recent talks are when to not use microservices, mm. um, and actually the 
if it is a known entity and you're not trying to figure things out, then that is a time to not use microservices. So it sounds like what you've actually ended up with there is a is a blend between the stuff that is a little bit more uh, unknown and has to happen, mm. you know, very very quickly, lots of computation versus the actual. Okay, this is this is the implementation of the law, and that's not going to change. So there's no real reason to have microservices there because. You know, the, the idea of microservices, I suppose, is that they're um, they have quite a short half life. Mm, uh, I suppose, yeah. don't they? They they, they get changed uh, quite quickly and quite frequently um, as you improve and, and and modify them. So, I guess in that instance, you know, the law isn't moving that fast to necessitate necessitate, necessitate that being microservices. Mm. No, I, but then, for instance, we have smaller components that do mm. like. Uh, replay all the applications onto the topic to see to do statistics and stuff and and then you make smaller components do that but it, the the bigger part the more compl- uh, the more complicated stuff it goes into the bigger application so in one of our other in one of our uh, earlier talks we've had conversation with some of the people who've been involved in in the UK government in uh, NHS test and trace for example and obviously we've we're all coming out of having um uh, well, a, a crazy year and a bit, I suppose, of uh, of, of pandemic world. Mm. And um, our government was not necessarily known for being that forward thinking in terms of its uh, in terms of its transitions uh, to more modern technology. But how did you manage to get the buy in for introducing microservices in the government? This sounds absurd. We just did it, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so ask forgiveness rather than permission. <laughs> yeah. And also it was, well, we had, actually, there was one discussion early on in this specific, where we, whether we wanted to reuse a bigger component from an earlier project or not. But we f- find that, uh, at least my experience, that something that seems similar uh, when, you, when, you, when you started, when you created one part and you want to go to the second part, it feels like the second part is going to be similar to the first, but when you dive into the details, it's uh, almost never the case that it's as useful as you think to reuse stuff. Mm. And we also think that uh, having the ownership and the domain knowledge and the knowledge of the code is more important because that's going to serve you for a longer time than some kind of initial boost you get just by reusing something from the start. You you need to, because these are systems, we're not in a competitive situation. This, mm. this is software that's going to, or at least an organization that's going to handle a problem for 40 more years. So there's being quicker to the first, uh, uh, quicker in the first three months is not as important as actually having the ability to change the system in 10 years' time. And then you need to, it's more important to build a team and an organization that knows their code base. So, how bought in is the is is the organisation, the government? How how bought in is the government in the idea that this is, um, you know, now this is now product development and this is going to be continuously developed? Uh, well, it's it's getting there. We are still mm. kind of because we have we have these big modernization programs, and that means we need to ask for extra money from the mm. finance department. Uh, and they had their processes for giving out extra money is the same whether we want to build software or a bridge. And uh, <laughs> of course, building a software and building a bridge isn't the same. Uh, so when you actually, when you go into how you want to run a big uh, chunk of work building software, you need to think about it differently. You need to, for instance, uh, you need to have much more focus on learning, I think, and trying to see progress 
can, in software development can be measured in different ways than if you build a bridge. You can say, we build something that we're not going to reuse anymore, but we learned a lot, so it's still progress. And trying to get that into the process because the people who give so, gives us money they want to have some kind of checks along the way if, if you are spending the money mm. wisely. And it's it's not easy, to, I think, to explain to someone who's not experienced in software how how you can actually have progress without right or while still throwing away all the code you just written. <laughs> and it, it still feels like progress because when you learned it, rewriting everything isn't the problem mm. when, when you when you know the domain. Well how far through are you in this in this transformation? Have you still got any of that mainframe left? Yes. Uh, we are kind of also we have multiple mainframes. Uh, or yeah. in, uh, at least for some definition of mainframe, <laughs> we are we are more than halfway through. I think the f- big mainframe, and then mm. the next big thing we are going to do is this incredibly strange oracle architecture thing. Uh, from <laughs> it's not for this is only twenty years old, but it was made just before J2E uh, happened. So nobody knew how to do application servers, and IBM had WebServe. And Oracle had this thing, which I can't really remember what they called anymore, where you put everything and literally everything inside the database. So it sounds like stored procedures, but it's not really stored procedures. It's like Java running inside the Oracle database. And every instance of a Java object has their kind of their cell in a table in an Oracle database. Which is the opposite of distributed computing. Yeah. <laughs> and the developers, have, for kind of to do local development, you have to have an instance of an Oracle database. Wow. And it, it's never funny to have to have an instance of an Oracle database in a laptop. <laughs> no, I can't imagine that's going to be particularly efficient. <laughs> no, uh, and they have this kind of uh, front-end tool as well called SQL Forms, I think. Mm. Oh, everybody loves SQL Forms. It's actually the, the funniest <laughs> thing about that system is the front-end, they have this development mode where kind of there's a frame around the GUI, which mm. is used only for development. And this is disabled in uh, production. But that means they can't change the size of the window in production because that breaks the kind of the disabling of the debug information. And this system is so old, it's built for 680 times, uh, no, 600 times 480 screens. Yeah, well, this is the, this is the sort of uh, system that you're used to seeing in, in banks and mm. insurance companies, you know, when you finally get the chance to peek over yeah. the shoulder of someone who's operating one of those windows and it's all squashed up into a corner. And... Yeah, that's the thing, because the GUI is like it's only icons. It's like yeah. you, one man heading that direction means do something and uh, face heading means something else. <laughs> so it's basically impossible to see because it's a small window in the corner of your screen. Yeah, with only yeah. icons, so they have to use like magnifying glasses to use the system sometimes. Uh, so that's the next one we're going to do something about, or we, we've just started now. I like that you uh, said that this is only twenty years old, which is <laughs> <laughs> probably older than some of our listeners. Or I know it's older than some of our listeners because we have statistics, you know, guys. <laughs> we actually we actually have even older systems, or we had, but they're kind of out now. We had one, we had one database of old earning information. Because you need that to calculate pensions, and I'm not can't remember the specific details, but you need kind of the earning information of the last of the spouses of people until everybody's dead, basically. So, uh, but this database is now in a read-only mode, and it we basically took this strange file and put some Java on top, so it's easier to 
it's easy to run. We can actually run that in Docker and Kubernetes, uh, but the date, the actual file is like uh, 40, 50, 60 years old, or 45 years old or something. So that's sort of a, a case of archiving it then rather than actually migrating it. Yeah, well, basically, we took the data and put some yeah. more modern stuff uh, around it, but the data is still there because we can't we can't remove the data. We need the data. But there's no plan really to migrate that into your current system. No, just sort uh, of... no. I, I, there doesn't feel like there's a need for that because we have we have an okay way of getting that data out. So before you started on this transformation, I mean, I presume there was probably wasn't very much change that had happened really within the system over over, over the over the previous years. I mean, how frequently were you changing this? How frequently were you, were you doing releases? Well, we had up until 2016, I think, or 14, we had something like uh, four releases a year. Wow, and okay. then we kind of had this uh, ongoing improvement. Actually, the talk uh, we're having at DevOps Enterprise is called From Four Releases a Year to Once Every Other Minute. Because right in, 2000 and, wow. in 2021, we are doing uh, 1,350 uh, approximately the releases a week. A week. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And if you put a normal Norwegian work week into that, you can kind of get that into once every other minute. And that sounds even funnier than 1,300 a week. But right now we have something like 1,200 applications and that amount of de deployments. But we still have some deployments stands for a much bigger share. No, some applications stand for a much bigger share of deployments than others, of course. So near as damn it, 1,400 deployments a week. Mm. That's incredible. How big are those? How how big are those deployments? What what's what's in a deployment? It's no easy answer to that question. Some of them are mm. basically just bumping. Uh, if Snick tells us you need to bump uh, libraries, that's one deployment. And mm. sometimes it's much bigger. Uh, so it's it's everything from smaller to bigger. Actually, it's one of the funniest things. We have this basically it's a recruitment portal for now, but. Uh, on the bottom part of that web page, there's like this aggregated view of all the commits we're doing on our GitHub organization. Mm. Because most of us, at least, or not most, yeah, most of our stuff is open source. Uh, so just watching all the commits coming through and you see something is like adding this field to this form or changing this rule and something is just bumping dependencies or doing everything else. Or uh, probably also there's a bit of people deploying to see if their deployment pipeline works now. <laughs> <laughs> But that's a that's a tiny so tiny tiny releases then essentially. Mm, yeah. So is this all um, how's how's this all wrapped up then? Is this wrapped up in a continuous delivery model? How how have you got from four release? I mean we're we're uh, we're eating into your talk a little mm. bit, so we don't want to. Uh, that's no problem. <laughs> we want people to go to your talk and listen <laughs> to your talk as well. But but um, you know give us a give us a flavour. How do you get from four releases to fourteen hundred a week? Actually, four releases a year to to fourteen hundred a week. How many is that a year? Have you added that up? Uh, no, well, uh, seven. Quick, Sam, bring a calculator. Up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Times it by fifty-two. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, not, not fifty-two because we have uh, Norway is good on uh, vacations, so we have like nothing in the summer, and then we have Easter and we have winter vacation and Christmas. So there's like maybe forty weeks or something. Forty but, weeks. Uh, yeah. oh, we should all move to Norway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, back to your question, it's like there's a big technical part, of course. Mm. Uh, we built this application platform called uh, Nice, which is what I consider kind of the normal thing now with Kubernetes and normal cloud native foundation kind of architecture with Prometheus and everything. And that mm. and that that takes a lot of the difficulty out of doing kind of the technical releases. You, mm. you can deploy without 
having downtime so you can basically deploy during daytime and that makes it safer. And then we have we have gone through almost all uh, deployment pipeline software known to man. Uh, <laughs> we had this big... We started with Jenkins's running on Linux virtual machines locally and then we had... We had this Travis period, and then the Travis thing happened, and then we had this Circle CI period, and then uh, GitHub Action came about. And because mm. we use GitHub for storing the code, it's easier to uh, basically token-wise, it's much easier to get the security set up when you have the code stored in GitHub, and to use GitHub Actions. So we, the, the nice platform has this home-built action. And you basically just use that and you pay, paste some tokens into your repo and then you have this nice have this deployment descriptor that you send into the cluster and then everything happens by magic after that. And so kind of the deployment pipeline has become really good right now, I would say. it's. Uh, I really like GitHub Actions. It feels like the perfect kind of abstraction and for reuse and making, making mm-hmm. deployments. So how do you actually manage, uh, you know, if you've got all these microservices um, and they're all in all sort of Kubernetes deployments, how are you actually managing the sort of coordination of all of those Kubernetes containers then? Because, uh, you know, some of that can be uh, relatively complex. The the last time I was working uh, some of that, we used um, Terraform. To mm. be able to control and give us an indication of state management, because we have we, we were really struggling at the time of not knowing which version of a given application was actually running in Kubernetes. Um, do, is have you figured something out with that, or are you just deploying that many things that quickly that it doesn't really matter? Uh, well, first of all, we want we kind of want to split it up. So there, our goal is for no one to need to have the kind of the overview of everything. You mm. should you should know your team stuff. So. The strongest concept in all our platforms is basically the team. The team has their own applications and it's into their namespace and you don't need to consider everything but your team stuff. Mm-hmm. And we use we only use Terraform for like infrastructure stuff like setting up the cluster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other than that, we have this simplified uh, deployment descriptor basically saying, giving you some some choices in how you want to set up this in Kubernetes, but we're taking a lot of the choices away from you, so we don't need to consider how to do load balancing or anything. That's just done. The pattern we've gone for is we have, we basically have several or multiple operators in the cluster. So if you want alerts, for instance, you put out a different YAML file saying what Prometheus query language statements you want alerts on, mm-hmm. and that's sent into the cluster, and you have a piece of software that we've written that transforms that into and puts it into Prometheus Alert Manager, and then you get alerts on in the, the configured Slack channel or on SMS. So we, we use we try to use as much as possible to have so, building the infrastructure as well as software because mm. it's easier to test and uh, maintain Go code than Terraform code when you need to do somewhat complex stuff. So mostly, it sounds like the control then is largely around namespaces then. So each, mm. if each of the teams yeah. manages their own namespace, then that's relatively straightforward. They can look after that, uh, the control of that. And when we move to the cloud, we also have like when you, when you register a team, you get a namespace in the cluster and they get a separate uh, project in uh, GCP. And then, so if you, for instance, create a, when you say you want a database, you get a dat- database in your own project. And then we use some Google magic to kind of have a secure connection between the app in the cluster and the database in the project. 
Okay, cool. And how does that work with uh, with testing as well? Then do you do you have any? I mean, what what levels of testing have you implemented in that? We try to do focus a lot on testing. There's this incredible article on martinfowler.com, not written by him, but uh, someone else about microservice testing strategies, which kind of says you need to test your own thing in isolation because when when everything moves at different speeds, you can't really depend on a shared, uh, shared environment because even though you have like your dependencies are your dependencies are in the cluster. You don't know if the same version of your dependency are in uh, test and in production. So, so basically, we need you need to test your code in isolation and rather have good monitoring and stuff to make sure that you pick up if something happens in production. But I, I would say we we try to have kind of a normal test pyramid with uh, loads of unit tests and some integration end-to-end test and basically the top level is the component test which is what you what you're going to deploy and then you mock out the dependencies instead of at least we aim for that to mock out your dependencies instead of depending on some someone else's code in a shared test environment so do you do any sort of integration testing then where it's where it's a shared environment or do you are you, are you purely sort of relying on um on on those sort of mocks i mean because there's so there's so much to communicate coordinate here there yeah, mostly mocks, but uh, a pattern in that article I mentioned that we haven't, uh, we try to do is kind of have some other tests that basically test your assumptions about the dependencies. Mm. So if you depend on a service, instead of having your code or your app uh, depending on that in test, you create a separate test that calls the code you want to depend on and see if that behaves as you think. Right. Then you kind of you you isolated your assumptions about the other code into a separate test. And then you can also do stuff like consumer-driven contracts, uh, which is where you can have your test running in the other person's repository. So there's loads of techniques I think you can use without actually having a shared test environment. Yeah, that's really interesting. Is that something... Um, is, is that how, how, how did you come to that sort of conclusion? How did you develop that? Well, I think it kind of came over time because we, we saw the same at Finn. We started mm. with multiple test environments, but when you have that many applications and you, you still have some dependencies, you see that the shared test environment with everything, it's it takes so much time to coordinate having a shared test environment that actually yeah. works. Yeah. And basically it's more work than it's game. <laughs> so <laughs> so you realize you have to do other other you have to test it in other ways. And at least if you can can isolate your team stuff. So you test everything. You have a sh- test environment for your team's applications, and then you mock out the stuff from the other teams. That's a big help because uh, at, at least at Finn, we had this rule that you can't complain about other people's applications in a test environment that's not being stable because it's a test environment, and you, you, uh, you can't really expect them to be stable because that's production. So then maybe you should try to for instance, use feature toggling or something to get your mm. code into production and see if it works there instead, if it's important. Yeah, so speaking about the production side of things, you know, do you do any sort of coordinated load testing? And if so, what sort of environment would that be against? No, we have very little load testing, but oh, really? Uh, load really isn't a big problem for mm. us. Uh, at least I, I am a bit... Uh, when I worked for Finn, we had like, which is of course Norway's biggest website, we had loads of traffic and Nav doesn't really have that much traffic. So... Mm. The traffic part isn't as important. We have 
we have some. I, I think some teams do some local load testing, uh, particularly they've made new apps and stuff. But it's nothing big coordinated on the load side. What sort of traffic were you talking with Finn? I, I'm not sure. I have the numbers in my head, but it's nothing even close to like uh, at Finn. We had several hundred page views a day, no, several hundred million page views a day, mm. uh, and there's nothing close up now. I, I'm. I should have the numbers in my head, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, we weren't necessarily going to talk about Finn that much, were we? So uh, <laughs> you're excused for not having yeah. the numbers to hand. <laughs> but um, in, in that environment, was was that something where you did have to prepare for for load tests? And if uh, and if so, you know, how, how did you deal with? Obviously, your your thinking has evolved over time, but mm. um, I think there's still a certain small pocket within our industry which wants to have a scaled uh, test environment. Mm. I'm, I'm curious as to what, what your thoughts are on, on that from based on the journey that you've gone through. Well, the, the problem we find is also it's incredibly difficult to get the proper load test on a big environment, I think, because you mm. need to have, you basically need to replicate your production environment completely and some you need to have the data set up in the correct way as well. Yeah. Uh, so and, and I've never really seen that really work i've done like i said before i've done some smaller load tests i think on some on a few applications but then uh, I'm, i have to admit i haven't really seen a big big value of that either because well of course it's difficult they've still broken in production sometimes because of load because it's really difficult to understand how to load test and if you can move fast it's often easier to either roll back or try some kind of staggered release so you can see if it works. And so where, you, where you're at now then, I mean, we, we talked a bit, or you mentioned briefly about Prometheus. So mm. presumably you've then shifted your focus um, to making sure that you've got really good monitoring and alerting mm. um, it's instead so that, that presumably, and I suppose if you can release as fast as you can release, that gives you a uh, probably quite a reactive way of, of dealing mm. with any issues as, as, as they arise. Yeah, and uh, of course, there's multiple strategies based on what kind of systems. If you have kind of the big logic applications where if you have an error, people either get the wrong amount of money or no money, we yeah. have to have more tests. But on kind, of, we, we we focus a lot on on making the systems able to handle errors and also do really good uh, observability. On them. Uh, the nice platform has this kind of default uh, Grafana dashboard you get from Prometheus because the interconnection between Prometheus and Kubernetes is really good. So it's easy to set up kind of a standard dashboard that shows all the normal things. And if you use the correct Java tools, you can get loads of Java or Kotlin, or at least JVM metrics as well into your dashboard really easily. So and, and just having that as a starting point makes it easier for the teams to see how they can build better monitoring after they see kind of what you get for free. And then, of course, the goal is to make the you kind of raise the abstraction layer on the monitoring. So you, 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 after a while, they start to more do business-level monitoring. Mm. And not instead of the infrastructure part, but as a complement. And that's a much better way to see if it actually works. Because of the dynamicity of a Kubernetes environment, it's, it's difficult to say if something works or not based on infrastructure because it's kind of self-healing in a way as well. Yeah, of course. And in terms of like the number of bugs and actual issues that you have, mm. Um, is is that a high count that you're dealing with? Is it a low count? 
I, what do you mean issues? Well, I mean, as you, <laughs> well, that probably answers my question actually. But in terms of uh, <laughs> in terms of the number of bugs that you have with this amount of, of of deployments, I mean, are you seeing a high count of them? Are you seeing a low count? You know, how many do you have to be to react to? Well, we don't really have a aggregated view of that. That's one of the things we really we're kind of we're really inspired by the Accelerate book, and we, we would mm. love to have kind of the four key metrics from Accelerate, but. The, uh, and we do deployment frequency, and we're just about to release uh, measurements for lead time. But the difficult part is the one that actually ha- has to do with errors, because it's much harder, at least I find, it's much harder to do a uniform way of detecting errors in your application. Mm. Uh, so it's if you want to measure mean time to recovery, you have to kind of see when does the error occur. And we haven't found a good way of doing that uh, uniformly for applications. So we don't really have a really good number for like bugs, for instance, not on an aggregated level. So that's the that's the next step, is it? Then? Yeah, uh, we hope so. We just need to figure out a good way of doing it. Hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, w- one of the things that I want to go back to a little bit here is, you, you know, you you've gone you've gone from zero developers to two to three hundred, depending on which mm. developers you're counting. <laughs> uh, how do you go about finding? developers for an organization that's never had any or never had any permanent ones i mean how do you you know talk to me about like how how do you find the right developers how do you find the first one how do you find mm. the you know to get the get the quality up there well there were, i would say there's kind of two two different ways we had to basically invent the process of interviewing developers and we've gone for something which i think is uh, i always thought that kind of the the at least for the big tech companies, the way they do it with kind of an uh, uh, kind of an algorithmic based uh, smaller code task isn't really that. It doesn't really tell you too much about how that person would work in a normal environment. First of all, because most of the task you've given doesn't match what you're doing. In it's not like put these four tables from a database up on a web page, which is like eighty percent of what everybody does. So we have a we do a code task, but the developers can do it at home. And it's basically more of an object-oriented modeling thing than kind of a, a complicated problem to solve. And of course, the most important part of that thing is the discussion we have afterwards. So mm. we focus a lot on talking about the choices you've done and why you've chosen these objects and not these and why you model it like that. And then the other part, how to how to get the people in this, we had this one big advantage. First of all, we, because now we're so big and we had so many consultants over time, everybody knew everybody knew about NAV. And mm. to be frank, most people knew that working at NAV as a software developer was quite bad. Yeah. So how did you convince them otherwise then? How did you change that sort of... Uh... That, that sort of view that people might have. Our our big advantage then was because everybody th- knew how bad it was just going going out and saying normal things made them understand how much better it became. <laughs> <laughs> so we, And then when we actually did some properly good stuff like the application platform, which is really good, it's even a bigger surprise, but just saying, just saying we want to reduce projects and focus on products and mm. hire on developers that's like a that was almost enough <laughs> to to get yeah. the to get the word spread but of course being a public 
company wages is always a problem. We can't pay as much as the people we hire as consultants, which is always difficult. But on the other hand, it, it means that we have this uh, thing we say that people that work for now, that we, they choose to work for now almost every week. Uh, mm. Because the software, if you if you're on LinkedIn, you get calls every week, <laughs> and uh, so you basically have to say, "Well, no, I'm not. In, I'm still happy where I am," mm. and uh, and that makes for a really enthusiastic and motivated workforce. They really they've chosen to work for now, and they they want to work for something that's that's a good cause, and not uh, work for people they don't know becoming richer. So are you are all of your developers from Norway? Are they all Norwegian, or do you have yes. people from around the world? Oh, they uh, no, they're all Norwegian. I'm actually I'm not sure if we can. Well, they're not all from Norway, but they all live in Norway. Right. Okay. So you do recruit globally then? Well, we had Fred at least. We, <laughs> we never had ads outside Norway, but the mm. people that moved into Norway and that worked for us, and we we want. Because, for instance, all the laws are in Norwegian, uh, mastering mm. the language is important. And we even, our code is kind of a mix of English and Norwegian, which is really strange. But it has to be that way because you can't really uh, translate some of the, like, the structure of the um, municipalities and stuff in Norway. You can't translate that, that into English. Then you go into the English society model. So then you have, if you use English, you have to have this... Uh, list of what the words actually mean in Norwegian and then you can just as well put Norwegian's word Norwegian words straight into the code. But it's it, it took me at least a year to get used to writing Norwegian words in the code. So that's interesting. Let, 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 let's let's I, I want to know a little bit more about that. So Norwegian words in the code, what extent are we talking here? Are we talking uh, variables and comments or you know how how far does it go? Yeah variables and class names yeah. and uh... Everything that kind of comes from the domain, mm. we've had we have this discussion regularly because everybody when there's new people coming in, they think, well, you can't put Norwegian word in the code. But then they realize when they're into it that you have really no choice, even though it feels strange. Because I was I was talking to some guys just this morning um, who were one Polish, one Ukrainian, mm. and. Um, we were talking about how most 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 code is written in English, like mm. you know, globally, and I think that's probably because you know all of the, you know, all of the syntax is English. You know, so when when you're talking about Nor Nor Norwegian in the code, you're still talking about you know a, a vast percentage of that code is going to read like English because it's you yeah. know Java or Kotlin or whatever it is. And, and the strangest part is when you, for at least in like normal Java code, you have all these patterns. Mm. Like when you when you have a factory, do, do you say factory or do you use the Norwegian word for factory when you're referring to the factory pattern or the builder? Mm. And I, we tend to have used English words for that. So we have like a Norwegian word builder. So you even you have mixed languages inside the same class names, which is even stranger. And you really have to get used to used to it to read it and understand it right away. Are there kind of internal rules then that you've all kind of agreed to that su suggest like, okay, these types of things we're going to write in Norwegian and we're going to leave this stuff in English? Or is it just... Not global rules, but like team rules at least. But it, it, I mean, we're too big to have like global rules. For instance, the application platform is pure English. 
because there's no Norwegian domain when it comes to deployment mm. and uh, stuff like that. So then mm. uh, we've had some, there's always someone who wants to have like these global rules and they try and then it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say as well, because I'm all right, I'm right in understanding that actually this, this, a lot of this code was, is probably legacy code from consultants different consultants coming in. So maybe there's a bit of, there's a lot to refactor there in terms mm. of, okay, what do these different consultancies, how have they written code versus how do you want to write code? And then how do you, well, yeah, I mean, it just sounds like a lot to try and get straight. One of the strange smells we have in the code is sometimes you see like imports with consultancy company names in them. Uh, <laughs> and libraries and yes yeah. <laughs> and, and it probably made sense at the time but it it feels strange when they want to insource to kind of have be based on libraries from the consultancy companies which aren't mm. there anymore or at mm. least not in the same capacity or position what, what was so hard around um try, what is so hard sorry around trying to align things globally with whether it's whether you use english or, or norwegian yeah. even simple patterns or, or whatever what's have you attempted that and what's been so hard to make it not worthwhile i think we really we value the autonomy of the team because yeah. because of the size we have like 100 teams and we we really think that the best ways for a team to create a good solution for a problem is if they have like uh, not just developers, but you have all the different disciplines into the team. And when you manage to describe a problem and for themselves to design the solution, that's when you get the good teams and the good solutions. So, mm. but at the same time, we have this, as you say, there's a value in alignment as well. So the, even though not necessarily on all the levels you can think about, I don't really care that everybody chooses the same programming language. That's something that should be a team the team decision, I think. And so we have we have basically two things that to, to handle the alignment. We have we have internal tech radar, uh, and we kind of say that the rule is everything is allowed as long as you publish it. So you, you can you can basically take whatever decisions you want technically, but you have to put it in the tech radar because then people will see it, and if they think it's a bad decision, it's their responsibility to say so. And maybe they've tried this thing before or something. And we also have uh, me and one other guy. We're kind of the principal engineers with a fancy title. And we have this <laughs> uh, uh, we have this presentation. We go around talking to the teams about what we think are good uh, good patterns or good, good directions we want the team to go to. But it's really important for us to say, this is our opinion. We know NAV is really heterogeneous. We can't really say everybody should do this we can say this is a good direction to go in and then we can have a discussion with the team if that's appropriate or smart for them to do. Uh, but so, but it's really interesting to balance the alignment and the autonomy. It's uh, incredibly difficult, but also kind of fun. I think there's, there's flavors of that that you see in the likes of Netflix and, mm. um, and Spotify as well, because obviously Spotify talk about that in their model, don't they, with the uh, high alignment side of things. And then Netflix have that same principle of context versus control where, mm. you know, there are some standard protocols that are supposedly followed within Netflix, but they will allow you to go out uh, as, a, as an engineer and pick a new language, pick a new um, tool and bring it back in and 
introduce that back to the back to the organization so it's a similar similar method that you guys have adopted then yeah i think and it's probably the easiest to describe it in terms of the application platform where we i think golden uh, spotify also called it the golden path mm. so instead of saying everybody should do this you just make it easy to do it one way yeah and then you say to the teams you can choose to do whatever but if you do it like this it's easy if you go the other way you have to do everything yourself and so when you actually started um, on this journey, how did you go about, you know, you, you're going from real legacy stuff. How did you go about choosing the languages you would start working with in? Because obviously you've allowed that to drift over time, but where did you, how did you pick where you were going to start? Well, well I, I'm not sure if this is a Norwegian thing or kind of a global thing, but in Norway, most companies are kind of divided into the JVM or .NET. Uh, oh, I think that's a global thing yeah. from what so I've seen. <laughs> we're we, we basically in the JVM camp. Right. Uh, we had, up until 2016, almost everything except for the mainframe Oracle things was Java. Mm. And then we had, we basically had what you described. We had some people was, that were really interested in Kotlin. Mm. And they tried it on smaller parts of the systems and it kind of grew organically. So uh, I would say now we, we write mostly Kotlin, but we still have mostly Java. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have any bursts of Scala for a while because that was very popular for a brief period of time. Uh, never Scala. Scala is, Scala is kind of the only thing everybody agrees on we don't want to. We, we can have good discussions. <laughs> There's two things I can say on in terms Slack that we'll always start discussions. That's either Spring or not Spring. All right. <laughs> and Maven versus Gradle. And we, we can... Mm. Uh, we basically, that's where they're... We're given up on alignment. People just choose. <laughs> so, which which side uh, does do, does the whole organization tend to fall on in terms of Spring or not Spring or Gradle versus Maven? Just out of curiosity, this <laughs> Spring thing is most. That's kind of even fifty fifty. I think probably really? more. The more Kotlin friendly you are, the less Spring friendly you are. But there are teams doing Spring and Kotlin together. Yeah. Yeah. And on the Maven Gradle thing, I think it's very evenly matched. There. So I, I'm proudly in the Gradle camp. Yeah. Uh, and where do you sit on the spring fence? <laughs> uh, I'm uh, outside the spring. Oh, okay. So you're outside of the spring camp. Yeah. But I've, <laughs> I, I, I actually think it's it's not my decision to make mm. for teams what to do because it depends on what they know and what they want to use, I think. And I've never had... I used to be a Java developer and I've never had... And as easy translation into new languages as I had to Kotlin. Java to yeah, Kotlin yeah. is a really easy transition. I've had I've written some Go and some Python lately, and that's a bigger step than going from Java to Kotlin. Well, if you if you have Java code on your clipboard, you can just paste it into IntelliJ and it kind of translates it into Kotlin. So it can't be mm. easier than that. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to get the impression, because I've been doing a bit of Kotlin development recently as well, and I'm starting to get the impression that you need to have IntelliJ to do it properly. Mm. Because yeah. uh, I'm I'm banging my head against a brick wall trying to do it in VS Code. Yeah, no, you probably well they the ones who created the language, so it's probably easiest to do that. Exactly, it seems like that. Like every time I'm I'm going through some of these tutorials and I hit the things where it's like, and now you just do this little thing, IntelliJ. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay, how do I do it? <laughs> but, but, but but I still find when I write Kotlin that I I think I've written good Kotlin, and, and then I meet some of the like the proper Kotlin people, and I realize I'm just writing. Uh, somewhat strangely 
kind of Java instead of writing yeah, actual code. Yeah, well, I can write mediocre code in any language, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the easy, easiest language to write mediocre code in is Golang. I think Golang is made for making mediocre code. Right, okay, well, that's what I'm cracking out this afternoon then. <laughs> Great. So, I mean, on the front-end side, where do you, where, where do you guys um, sit? Well, I, this is far out of my comfort zone. Uh, I, I, we do a lot of React, I think. Yeah. Uh, I also heard some teams do more Vue, mm -hmm. uh, but I've, I've, I'm not allowed to do front-end code. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, like, that's one global decision, actually. Okay, so what did what did you do that ended up? Uh, what, what what did you do that ended up with you being banned from writing front end code? <laughs> this even happened before I started working at Nav. I basically traveled down. The, I used to be a back end developer, then I turned into an angry, bitter back end developer, and that's an, going from that to a platform developer is kind of a natural transition yeah. because then you want to solve all the problems you've had during your career. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that makes sense. <laughs> I, I, I'm. Did some front end stuff really early, but I have no talent, and I'm I have no. It it feels like I'm all, almost blind because the visual part of anything doesn't res, I don't, don't respond to that at all. So it's impossible for me to say if something looks good or if something's not the like. Mm. It's it just doesn't work. So there's no point in me doing that. And also the front end stuff is all also often kind of made, you need to understand normal people. And I'm not. I'm good at understanding developers. <laughs> I'm not good at understanding normal people. It's an interesting interpretation. That's yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll think about that whenever <laughs> I meet someone who says they're you know front end or back end. Yeah. This is this is probably why I fall more on the back end side, and Sam falls more on the front end side. I think maybe Sam's better at understanding normal people than I am. <laughs> mm. I think we, we've spoken about it before, though. I think with React and with Vue, um, there is a lot of back end developers. And a, back, a lot of back-end kind of logical mentalities becoming front-end developers because I know a lot of front-end developers who are terrible at the design aspect. You know, they still need someone to come in and, and help with things, but there's a lot more logic, obviously, now in the front-end. So, mm. you know, you might might want to try your hand at it and see how far you get. I, I saw, I think, something on Twitter, or I can't remember, but it said instead of the full-stack developer talking about the full-stack team, Mm. And, and and that kind of makes more sense that you could have kind of the specialized role into where you work in a stack, but you need to have you need a team to be able to handle everything. Mm. As long as it's JavaScript and Node, yeah, <laughs> then you course. can have everyone doing everything. Well, that was what I was going to mention actually, because obviously the, the front end stuff has crept into the back end in terms of mm. being full stack, but it is largely with things like uh, like Node. And then I think, you know, there's Ruby as well, which arguably tries to play a, a fine line between being front-end and back-end, and then uh, Python. And I suppose with, the, with those three languages, they tend to bridge the gap, I think, between more classically front-end things, uh, like pure JavaScript stuff, or, you know, where we came from with things like jQuery, I suppose, as frameworks, and now React and Vue and Angular and those sort of things, versus the back-end, which has always been either hardcore JVM or, um, mm. or .NET, as you mentioned. But where do, where do you guys fit on? Well, actually, you know, from a personal opinion, where do you, what do you think of that sort of, those sort of languages that sit in the middle, I suppose, Node and Ruby and... Um, and Python, amongst others. I don't have that much experience because I've never really crossed the divide into front-end too much in mm. the last 10 years, but I feel that uh, we had, there seems to be some people who really want to use like full-stack node. Mm. Uh, and But 
at least I've never seen that many of them. So it's not been a big thing where I worked. And uh, Ruby, I've never worked anywhere where anyone has wanted to write hardly any Ruby. So yeah. I have no experience with that. Python always seems to come in from some kind of uh, uh, group of people outside the, the main part. <laughs> now the data engineers, for instance, really want to do Python for everything. Yeah, they? yeah. Well, there's a lot. It, it's used a lot for scripting, isn't it? And especially mm. in the um, in the world where you start to bring in a lot of um, data manipulation and yeah. you know, obviously yeah. your data engineers and machine learning side of things. Is that is that something that your your teams are experimenting with? Yes, uh, we have we're building things around the Jupyter notebooks. Mm. Which, uh, which is for me, was kind of a big, a really struggle when I saw them at first because it feels like kind of uh, playground programming. But when you understand <laughs> the thought processes behind it, understand why having this showing the data in in the steps is really good for like ad hoc analytical work, for instance, it mm. makes more sense. But it, but I th- still think there's a divide there between having that for kind of exploratory stuff and then you have to translate it into proper code when you want to have something running in production for a while. Yeah, Because sure. then you need kind of the robustness and the monitoring and uh, everything. Well, also the computational speed as well. I mean, there is a massive difference in terms of... Uh, I did I haven't done much benchmarking recently with the JVM, but on the .NET side, you know, those uh, those languages are so much faster, mm. so much faster than, uh, than, uh, than some of these... Or some of the more sort of hybrid languages or the processing languages like Node and... Um, Ruby and uh, and Python. I really think there's a good. There's going to be a lot of development in kind of the intersection between backend programming and data programming, mm. uh, where you have kind of the because I think the the brains of the data people are really interesting. They're good at looking at the data and the problems in a different way, but they haven't had the same development in the tooling that the that backend development has had in the last ten years. So you now it's. Nobody ever makes an application without continuous delivery, for instance, or with mm. monitoring. And you need to have get into that for the data part as well to get kind of the full full value of everything that's happened in the software world for the last five years. Well, I think this is where you were heading before with the full stack team mm. idea, isn't it? I mean, I think you probably have to, well, you still have to have the depth in one of those areas, really. Mm. And you, you need to have a team that is made up of people who have that depth in um in, in the in the right areas. So as a collective team, the team has more power than a team of just generalists. Yeah, I think uh, having analytical power in the full stack teams is an incredible, incredible strength because then you can you, you get those analytical mindsets into figuring out and making being more data driven basically in your decisions from day to day, and that's something teams often forget. I think. Uh, is that something you've built into that? You, we talked about the interviewing process briefly. Um, is, is that something that you've built into the interviewing and hiring process as well to make sure that you are building those full stack teams? Uh, no, but that's actually a really good uh, idea to have more of the data part than uh, also in the back end interviews and kind of merge those more together. We still have different interview styles for front end and back ends, for instance. Well, you heard it here first. We'll have a we'll have you back then to let us know how that went. Uh, <laughs> um, so you, you're talking about different interviewing processes, though. So I mean, how? I mean, I'm, I'm curious because I've been through a few uh, rounds of transformation around hiring mm. recently. Um, how long does it take you to 
find somebody, interview them, and then actually return an, an offer to them? Well, we're kind of... Um, there's laws in Norway about how the government can hire, which kind of right. slows us down a bit. But uh, I think we... We're talking at weeks, I think. We, we, we've gone from months to weeks. Yeah. Uh, but we realized when in the current market, when you do months, you just lose everybody because no one, no one ever only have one offer. They have multiple offers and they normally can't wait for too long. So, so we had to do it quicker. And slimming down that coding test as well makes you know, perfect sense. Because I think, again, some of that stuff, um, you know, I've, done, I've done extensive coding tests with, as, 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 a, as a, someone who's hiring before. Mm. Um, and I don't think it really adds much at all. I, th- I think you, you probably, I don't know how it works for you guys in the government, and we'd love to you know, learn a little mm. bit more about that. But I think you're probably better having a longer probation period and seeing how somebody behaves um, with and fit gels in into a team and starts delivering stuff. I found that to be a better measure than can somebody um, solve an al- algorithmic problem, yeah. as you mentioned before in an interview. I, I really think the I, although I, I'm I'm curious to see if kind of because I've never done the algorithmic part kind of interview, so I'd be curious to see how that matches how they how they code normally uh, when mm. you don't have to uh, balance a binary tree. <laughs> which I've never actually done uh, professionally. <laughs> no, I don't think anyone ever has. I mean, <laughs> one of my one of my favourite questions was to uh, I, I like to do a lot of search related questions. So I had a, a search question which was, um, you know, if you've got a bag of three different coloured balls, uh, can you sort that in a single pass or mm. as close to a single pass as mm. possible? And seeing how people would go through it. And I've done it. Um, I have the last one of the last places I worked. I um, I asked the questions to the developers that we actually had on the team. And funnily enough, the only person who could actually solve it was the product manager, <laughs> who so happened to be a, a, a PhD in, uh, in mathematics. Yeah. And, um, and he wasn't very good at coding. No. And the, <laughs> but, the, um, but the developers, it was interesting to see how they thought and how that mm. actually interact. you know, because they were working full stack. They were doing a similar microservices architecture uh, to what you've got, to what Fred designed, because mm. uh, I'm a big fan of that stuff as well. Mm. Um, but with .NET instead of JVM, yeah. um, it didn't really have any impact on how they thought about stuff and how they how they programmed. We we basically have two different uh, coding tasks. We do one smaller one, which is basically connecting to one of our APIs and showing the data. Mm. Uh, because I always find that uh, integration code is uh, is important. That's something almost at least back in developers. You have to do some kind of HTTP code at some point, and then but yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other part is a bit bigger, and I've actually stolen this from some kind of Guardian, the newspaper code kata thing on GitHub. Oh really? Uh, it's like a, it's something to do with blackjack, the card game, mm. uh, where you kind of have this small description of an algorithm algorithm for the blackjack game, and we basically wanted to code that, and then you have to model, you have to have the card and the player and the hand and the game. So normally it turns out into four or five different classes mm, uh, mm. and tests and everything. And then just talking to the people about why did you choose this, mod- this model instead of that and what would happen if it did this instead of that. And uh, also the other thing is how many people who goes 
far overboard in complexity, mm. which is more interesting than the other part, I think. And, I, I presume that's the one that you give them a bit more time to respond to. Then. Yeah, this 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 is like uh, when they, we see three or four hours, I think, of coding mm. in that. And the important part then is how they how they talk about it, and also, for instance, how they react to constructive criticism of the code to see if they kind of go into <laughs> if they go into defense yeah. or if they want to just say, well, this is a good opportunity for learning, because I, I feel that when you when you work in a team, if you say this is my code, that's never going to work in a team setting. You have to no, no. kind of have our code, and then yeah. you have to understand that other people might have better ideas than you. I think it's quite a, it, it's quite a good idea, I suppose, to pick something where it's a standard a game like blackjack, where mm. you know even if you don't know it intimately, yeah, you know you know the idea and the concept of it, because um, that's very similar to the bowling game Carter, which um, uh, is that it's an Uncle Bob one, I think, isn't it, for teaching yeah, unit I tests? So. Mm. Um, so yeah, I think that's again that's quite a good one to to go through. But I think you're you're um, you're absolutely right. I tend to focus more on a design question mm. uh, these days because I like. As you're saying there, I like to see how people think about things mm. uh, and see how they're, how they're responding to stuff. And also, given new information, how they then change their design or you throw an additional problem at them saying, you know, like, okay, say this 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 thing that we've built or we've designed as a website, maybe an e-commerce site. Um, what are we going to do if we're all of a sudden receiving 10 times the amount of traffic? Mm. How are we going to modify it? Where are the bottlenecks going to be? And I found that to be much more effective in terms of... Um, you know, determining whether someone thinks in the right way. For senior people, we have somewhat like something like that as well. But that's not a that's something you just get in the interview. Mm. Where you're kind of giving these requirements. What what boxes do you want to draw on your architecture diagram and why? Yeah, uh, yeah. Because that that's kind of show. It's it. I feel that's a very different skill. Basically, there's architecture. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, there's not not that much correlation between who does the one thing good and the other thing good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's you. From asking that question, you kind of know. You, you it allows you to sort of place them in mm. a you know as to as to how senior they are. Yeah. Um, because you you because it's it's quite a good question because you can either go deep into the code mm. or you can come out and be more abstract. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that's a little bit of a side uh, a, a side story. So, um, whilst we're on um, the idea of, of interviewing, like actually, one of the hard things is is interviewing people remotely because we're mm. all um, we're all remote at the moment. Yeah. Uh, I presume you guys are still all remote as well. Yes, uh, we've been we built a new office uh, in 2019 or and 2020 was going mm. to open in uh, the summer of 2020. Ah, and, timing perfect uh, hardly anyone has ever <laughs> been there uh, but we we worked almost inclu- exclusively remotely since 12th of march last year wow and and so how have you managed to um t- to be able to do that remote working especially with all of the xp type practices that i'm sure fred brought along actually what, my biggest learning from all this is that pair programming is better remote than in the office because some of the things that, at least for me, and I think for quite a lot of people, is tiresome with pair programming, mm. comes from the physical closeness. And the fact that you can't even look at something else, it feels like you're kind of disappointing your partner. <laughs> <laughs> but, but when you have this, when you have it remotely and you share a screen, for instance, we mostly use Zoom for this. Right. Uh, it, it feels like it's, 
you can last longer pair programming when you, you sit at home and you, you just share a screen. And also it's easy to do like mob programming. So we do quite a lot of more than two people together as well. Okay, so you're you're actually um, moving up from pairs to triplets, I guess, and, and yeah, more. Yeah, and sometimes, and it's kind of it's probably often correlates with where we are in the problem solving process. Mm. When you're kind of early, you want more people in because then they understand the boundaries of the problem, and then it's easier to say, well, you to go do that, and you to go do that, and then we meet again. When you've kind of had a shared understanding of the base. So how how do you coordinate that then? So I presume you, you all start with a stand-up in the morning and then where does it go from there? Actually, another really cool uh, pattern I've seen is that we have we, we use Zoom and we have this, uh, what we call the lobby for the team. They have this mm. one Zoom room and then there's someone's responsibility to make a lot of breakout rooms uh, every morning. And then everybody meet in a big breakout room, uh, in a big Zoom room, and then they go into the different breakout rooms during the day and then come back for lunch. So normally they either they just continue with the left of the day before or they have some kind of stand-up either. I think we've actually gone a bit, at least some teams have more like a weekly thing than a daily thing. And uh, Right, okay. But they're still connecting, but they're still connecting each day to to and they kind of have for the three or four different things they work on during the week. This is normally a bigger group that probably would you would call multiple teams. Mm. So you could probably say they have like a weekly thing altogether, and then they have almost continuous uh, coordination in the smaller group where they where they do loads of mob programming, for instance. And you don't really need a stand up to discuss what you're all going to do together after the stand up. Then you can just start doing it, and then you split out into pairs when you need to. That's interesting. So is that a um, that's an interesting evolution of the agile way of working then. So is that is that something else that's come from Mr. George or is that um, is that something that you guys have worked towards yourselves? Uh, this actually has come more naturally after we've gone full remote. Mm. Uh, I, I think we have, we have more adaptation of pair and mob programming remotely than we did before. We, we did pair programming, um, but this was more pure pair programming when Fred was there. Uh, when he kind of said... Uh, well, basically, we had uh, we we rotated pairs every day, and at least the teams he were in. Mm. But I, I think we kind of gone from a, for a more different model after that. The funny thing is this: this model has spread into multiple teams, where they kind of do it the same way with the Zoom rooms and uh, the mob and pair programming. And did that evolve naturally, or was that a suggestion across the organization? Uh, quite natural. I think we've had that. we had a few people saying, "Well, we did this, and this is smart." And then some other people, some other teams, tried it. Mm. The mm. only thing I'm worried about is this kind of place. Uh, this kind, it, the Zoom licensing model it doesn't. Uh, <laughs> this is a very cheap way of using Zoom. So I'm assuming someone is going to change this model at some point, <laughs> because then you basically have. 10, 20 people using one license because they're all in one Zoom room with breakout rooms. Oh, we, we won't tell Zoom if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I'm sure someone else will come along with a cheaper model that will work mm. for this. Because if this is a, if this is a, you know, I think may, maybe we are due a different way of uh, a different way of working. As you know, agile as uh, agile as defined is 20 years old. Um, and actually, there's plenty of practices, as we discussed, I think, with Fred, didn't we, Sam? Um, leading into that, there was there was plenty of agile-like practices leading in. Mm. But obviously, this is a new world we're in now, so we're we're maybe due an, an, a different um, a different iteration in the way that we work together um, in in software. So, 
The one thing that stands out to me, though, is if you're this flexible in your working, and as long as the work is getting done, that's great. But how do you uh, how do you measure the progress on that, and then how does that get reported back? Well, this is one of the big problems, of course, because uh, I- I've always found measuring progress is difficult in software development. It's, it's difficult to say what you measure against. Mm. It was normally you want to measure against a plan someone made beforehand, but that plan stopped being sensible the day you started coding normally. Uh, and then you can, of course, you can reiterate on the plan, but then you're just reiterating based on the knowledge you get whilst coding. But we have this external pressure might be a too big a word, but you have this external thing of, of the governmental ways of, and the processes for we get all this money and they need to make sure that we're spending it wisely. And we've had loads of... Uh, trouble discussions on figuring out how to do how to do the continuous improvement and the product model in a world where we also have external requirements on reporting progress mm. and it feels like sometimes it's it, it, we haven't found a solu- really good solution i would say uh, i really like this there's this quote from um, brandolini an italian software the guy behind event storming mm. he says that uh, creating software is a learning exercise and the functioning code is just a side effect. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, but if you really take that into heart, you think, what does that mean for how you work? Because then you should really start to measure the learning, mm-hmm. uh, not the code, because mm-hmm. the learning is a difficult part and it's incredibly difficult to give an external measure on how, how much have we learned about this domain. It's It's much easier to say, well, we, we managed to handle 50% of all the applications, for instance. But that might be the easy part, or that might be the, all the difficult parts, and you've done all the important learning. Uh, so I think one of the things is you need to reduce the distance between the people who care about the progress and the team. Uh, and basically try to get... If the team are responsible, then at least, at least in theory, you don't need anything outside the team caring because the team is actually the responsible party here. Uh, but of course, this is somewhat utopian and not easy to implement. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, and I think it's also very difficult because if you've got um, if you've got commercial requirements as well, mm. if this thing needs to be shipped by a certain date, or you know, say you're working with a client who's expecting a delivery on a certain date, um, you know, then the, you're always going to have to return to estimates. And I totally agree with you in terms of you know, it is a learning activity. Um, you know the the plans are off as soon as you start coding. Um, that's I think that's where you kind of still have to be good at estimating or refining those estimates or giving mm. enough of a um, a window, I suppose. That you know we think we can do it within this time, and the closer we get to the finish, the more accurate we'll be able to tell you when it's going to finish. Yeah. And, and you, you kind of have to do this from the start, saying. This is an estimate, but uh, read all these books about how estimates doesn't work before you yeah. look at them again. <laughs> well, half the half the problem is explaining what an estimate is, I suppose, isn't it, <laughs> yeah. to the business? And the, it it is an estimate; it is not a guarantee. <laughs> mm. And it's normally a ban, and that doesn't mean you can just say the earliest date is when the team has promised to deliver, which is kind of what it feels like people hear all the time. Mm. And also, I mm. think it's. Um, there's still this is probably the most difficult thing we do right now to figure out how to do 
to do agile product development in a world where we have external parties that doesn't really understand what that means yet, but they still have mm. these processes they need to fulfill. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. I, I think that's probably the next uh, the next challenge, but um, mm. but not one that we're probably going to answer today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think um, we're we're probably coming to the end now because I think we've we've you know we've used up more more than enough of your time. Um, so thank you very much for, uh, for for spending the time to to talk with us today. It's been a really interesting conversation. And uh, and hopefully at some point when travel restrictions are lifted, we might actually be able to see each other in person yeah. at some point, which would be nice. It would be. Thank, thanks for having me as well. <laughs>